Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm sitting here with my comrade, Mark Pringle. Hello, Barney. Hello, Mark. We're here to tell you about everything that's new on Rocks Back Pages this coming week. We have an audio interview with Juliana Hatfield. We have some pieces by the late, much respected Dave Lang whom we lost earlier this week. But we're going to start today with the free on RBP feature, which is about the specials. Um, well, useful, well, useful sound of a, of a, a <laughs> siren. Sorry, this yes, town is coming like, coming like a ghost like town. A ghost town. Um, um, we're not in Coventry, we're in Hammersmith, but what's, nonetheless. What's the reason for the specials feature? New album, my friend. Right. New album. Specials, sort of, it's kind of reunion, sort of, sort of, Part two, part three. All sans Jerry Dammers. Inevitably sans the great Jerry Dammers, whose band it essentially it originally was. Absolutely. Um, so um, there's a new album, Terry Hall at the helm, the unmistakable voice of the original specials. So we're going back to the dawn of the special story, which of course is, is, is 1979, actually performed probably as early as 77, or gigging in 78. But we first started to hear about them in 79, and the first album, just called The Specials, came out in October of 79. And we have a piece by Deanne Pearson for the New York Rocker, as it happens. Deanne wrote for British Music Mags, but this was clearly a piece to introduce The Specials and, to a degree, two-tone records to a certainly New York audience. Deanne was very much one of the first people, alongside Gary Bushel, funny enough, and Sounds, who really... Uh, picked up on the two-tone movement. And well, f- the second piece, in fact, is by Gary Bushell, yeah. and it's more broadly about two-tone, mm-hmm. whereas Deanne's piece for New York Rocker is essentially an interview with, with the drummer Brad, or Prince Rimshot, John Bradbury. So he's essentially telling her what the specials are all about. Right. And there's interesting stuff in it. Like, I mean, this is going to be of, of interest to more kind of inside baseball style readers of Rock's Back Pages where Brad talks about the specials being slagged off by Black Music Magazine. Really? Who he says, take the view that people like Rico, the trombonist and other luminaries, never got the break, whereas along come a bunch of white guys, take a few of the licks and riffs and turn the whole thing into some sort of gold mine. We should really just, I suppose, back up and, and, and explain exactly what the specials were. Can you do that for well, us? Well, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> not really. I mean, I mean, you know, they, uh, along with a bunch of other bands, had glommed onto sort of white working class culture from the late 60s and early 70s, which was passionate about ska and reggae and had adopted it with a sort of punkish attitude and so on and so forth. And sort of, it was a very speeded up version of ska. It was as close to punk as it was to anything Jamaican as, as such. And then they had this very complicated relationship with their audience, who they attracted precisely those sorts of people. This was, 79 was one of the various skinhead revivals was going on at the time. The National Front and British movement were at a sort of peak of sorts. The Lewisham riots were around that mm-hmm. time, I believe. Yep. Um, it was a pretty ugly time in England all around. It's a heyday of sort of rock against racism, yeah. isn't it? Yep. You know. 
And so bands like Specials, Madness, The Select, etc., did draw this 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 quite bizarre mix yeah, yeah. of skinheads and young black yeah. kids. I mean, the Specials were a mixed band. They had a um, couple of black members and were otherwise white. Yeah. Madness were all white. Uh, it's very interesting. There's another on the library, um, Diane Pearson piece from the NME from uh, November 79 when she was on the road with Madness. And Chaz Smash, their sort of gobby dancer, stage dancer, said, it's got nothing to do with us. He snaps impatiently. We don't care if people are in the NF or the BM or whatever, so long as they're behaving themselves, having a good time, not fighting. What does it matter? Who cares what their political views are? We don't ask them, we don't ask them. And if they're conservative or Labour when they come through the door, there's no no difference. They're all kids. At which point the rest of the band start disassociating themselves from him in a hurry. But it does show that some of these bands, mm. there was a sort of ambivalence towards sure. you know, um, sure. very interesting times. Yeah, very and I mean, of Damos particularly was you know explicitly overtly anti-racist. Absolutely, and that was a big part of what uh, the special uh, stood for. And so, uh, some of the other bands like Selector were even more mixed, and, yeah. and with a black front woman and so on and so forth. It, musically, I personally don't find the early period of the Scar revival desperately interesting. Mm. I think the specials really got interesting about a year or two later. I mean, Ghost Town, for me, is just one of the one great One of the records. great British records, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's such a powerful yeah. statement of but the time. You could also say that Ghost Town was the beginning of the end of the original specials because Damas was leaving the band behind. He, he really was. They, were, they just wanted to have a good time and play these good time songs. Damas had a very different musical vision, which he's continuing to do to this day. Well, um, absolutely, and the final piece really sort of plays into this because when they first attempted a reunion about ten years ago, Damas was invited to be part of it, and then effectively he was, as he put it, booted out of his own band. In fact, he instigated the reunion, and then he said all his managers appeared, and uh, he wanted to go into the studio and record new material. He wanted them to rearrange their old hits in a new and interesting yes. way. They weren't interested. They wanted no. a straight revival. No. Uh, and Damas tells Chris Salvage in this Daily Telegraph piece from uh, March 2010, he said, I mean, he says, nostalgia was considered a mental illness in the Victorian era, a morbid obsession with the past. <laughs> he wanted to do new things with, with, well, new songs, but to do new things to the old songs yes. as well. Yep. And I think you're right, there's a, there's a real split there. So don't know what the new specials album's going to sound like, whether it's going to be any good, but I suspect, you know, Dam is free, it's not going to be yep. as interesting. Of course, the special AKA, uh, I think we're pretty wonderful oh, I yeah. mean Free Nelson Mandela yeah. that, that album in the studio it's some amazing things it's, on it's it. a fantastic it's record song The Boiler with uh, Rhoda uh, Dacos th- singing that's great the only thing I like about you is your girlfriend yes is just brilliant and wonderful video they did with it which is just one of the funniest things I've ever seen on television yeah terrific record torturous process making it I was I worked briefly with the guy who mastered it, and apparently Damas came in ten times to remaster the record, and yes. he was happy with it. Yes. He was having, I think, something of a breakdown at the time. Yes. Interesting man. I mean, I never knew until I read the article that his father was a senior cleric at Coventry Cathedral, uh, and there's a sort of ethical line running through what Damas has always done. He, he's never gone for the quick buck. Uh, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, he, he's sort of one of those, you know, in kind of Herbert Herman Melville terms, Bartleby the Scrivener, he's like, I would prefer not to, yes. rather than I would prefer to. You absolutely. Know? He's someone who, 
who could have, you know, monetized his extraordinary reputation. Don't uh, have he, he, he absolutely could, and, and he, I, he's someone I regard with a huge amount of respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just briefly as an aside, given that the two-tone piece is written by Gary Bushell, a controversial figure, yep. someone we've had on Rock's Back Pages for many years yes, now, yes. a very important early writer who did then... I mean, and he wrote a lot about... I mean, he was a member of the SWP, I believe, the, the, and he, the he wrote worker. quite a lot about the two-tone era yes. and uh, certainly purported to be very anti-racist, then later became, I'm not saying for a second he became racist, became very right-wing, yeah. he became a tabloid TV critic, and he still is, he describes himself now, I believe, as a libertarian and a patriotic anarchist um, <laughs> but I just I kind of briefly searched for recent things he's written and a sort of classic piece of, of Bushel writing is a brutal sort of attack on Stuart Lee who is the sort of liberal left yep. meta comedian of choice the bugbear of, of so many on the right because he, he hits so many of his routines are, are sort of lambasting the levers and so forth and, yep. and, 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 and Gary writes and this is Last year, we're just the mugs whose license fee money has subsidised his bile spewing career for decades. Oh. Um, I mean, I happen to think Stuart Lee is a genius. So to read that, I'm disappointed yeah, no, in Gary's view of that. It's so knee jerk yeah, to but, me. Uh, I, I mean, B- Bushel is really interesting. I mean, first of all, he was a pretty good writer. I mean, stylistically, it's very punchy, very self consciously working class. But after promoting the two tone thing, his next big thing was Oi. And now Oi was a, a pretty nasty skinhead subset of punk it in, really the, was. in the early 80s with some nakedly racist overtones. Absolutely. Um, uh, and I don't know. I mean, it just it felt odd reading this guy who had written so passionately about really some wonderful stuff. Yes. Suddenly sort of taking, taking this sort of... You know, left turn and right turn into yes. in, 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 in all of that. Yes, yes, I agree. So, I agree. But a good so, writer, good yeah. writer. I'm glad we've got him on Rock's back page. I, weirdly, I, I recruited him by finding his own political party's website. He's got some sort of very. He obscure, did have a party. There's that goal, He actually it. stood for. He, he stood as an MP. Did he? he, he yeah. <laughs> I, um, I mean, he was delighted to come on board. Um, if you're listening to this, Gary, we're very pleased to have you on board. <laughs> yes, yes. Even if we do love Stuart Lee. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on from the specials of Gary Bushell and Jerry Damers to the other three pieces on the homepage this week, which are by the late, great Dave Lang, starting with a piece from December 1973, Let It Rock. Now, Dave was involved in the great Let It Rock, a magazine that, that was hugely important to me and had some some of the best writers yep. in the UK press. I mean, it was a kind of collective, I think, wasn't yes, it? Yes, that's it rock. right. Yeah. And so this is a piece about, yes, John Martin. He writes essentially about having... Uh, followed the evolution of John Martin from a folky uh, singing on a barge in Kingston-upon-Thames to this extraordinary kind of musical explorer on stage with Danny Thompson yep. and John Stevens. Yep. And, who, of course, the great Solid Air album. Which the was... wonderful... So this is this is after Solid Air and I think Inside Out has just come out. I think both those albums came out in 73, uh-huh. didn't they? I mean, they're, they're two of my favourite albums. Solid Air, uh, like many people, I just <laughs> worship it. And yep. I, I was lucky enough to see 
Martin, I think played the new Victoria with with that trio and all the Echoplex gadgets. And I mean, he was absolutely astonishing. Yeah. I think I briefly uh, shared a hash dealer with him when I was at art school. And at seventy five, he saw me throw up, which is one of my lessons. John saw moment. you throw up. John well, saw me throw that's up. Some kind of honour, isn't it? <laughs> um, but he's but he's very he captures it well. You know, he says you know, the guitar is amplified and two foot pedals operate a fuzz box and Echoplex. Yep. Waves of sound and chords and phrases wash over the audience. The voice too has been transformed from the precise tones of the folk revival to a playful muttering moaning and screaming instrument deployed against thompson's busy bass lines and the dense guitar sound well that captures the experience that i had the other pieces there's there's a a review of of all things bill monroe and his bluegrass boys and bill monroe was the sort of Godfather yep. of, of bluegrass, sixty-three years old at this point, but playing in a monastery just outside Glasgow <laughs> in the spring of nineteen seventy-five. I, I, I sort of did a double take when I saw this, but it's great to think that, that people coming out to see to see Bill Monroe uh, in in. in Monasteries. Scotland. In monasteries, <laughs> the monastery. and finally, there's a piece which is actually from Dave's contribution to a book called The Electric Muse, which was all about, you know, folk and folk rock. Yeah. I mean, Carl Dallas is one of the contributors. Right. It's an important book, came out in, I think, 75. And it's about the singer-songwriter movement, in a sense. But it focuses less on the likes of Joni Mitchell and James Taylor yeah. than on... Perhaps the slightly more MOR end, of uh-huh. it, the Jim Croce's, even the John John Denver, yep. Gordon Lightfoot, yep. Arlo Guthrie, and others. So it's quite an interesting look at how sort of post Dylan, you know, people started to write their own songs yep. and sort of in a sense become slightly more yep. navel gazing and autobiographical uh, in the way they presented. Whilst their also been fantastically music. successful. I mean, the, yep. the, those people you named, I mean, Jim Croce was. A, we forget how big a star he was. His yeah. very short career, because he died in a plane crash. He did indeed. He um, did. But in America, certainly, I don't think he had a huge amount of impact in this country. But mm. Jim Croce was a big star. Yes, yes. In America, yeah. And John Denver probably was commercially the most successful singer of the songwriter of the lot. Well, yeah. certainly more even than Dylan or anybody. Yeah, but, un- unfortunately, true. But so mar- marking um, marking the the passing of Dave Lang, who was one of the original kind of rockademics in a way. So right. he sort of graduated from uh, from Let It Rock and and writing for other music papers too teaching at the University of, of Liverpool. He wrote one of the first sort of academic books on punk rock called One Chord Wonders and later became one of the main obituarists for The Guardian. And I was pleased to see that he was in turn obituarised <laughs> by, um, by Tony Russell, another yes. of our writers. Yeah. It's a very nice obituary in The Guardian this week. We met Dave a few times at IASPM conferences and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he's a, he was a, a very cheery fellow, a nice man, and um, will be will be greatly missed. So at this point, we are going to turn our attention to the week's new audio interview for subscribers, Mark. So I shall hand this over to you. Yeah, it's uh, Ara Robbins interviewing Juliana Hatfield. Uh, her first solo album, Hey Babe, had just come out. 1992. 1992. Right? Uh, she'd left a band called the Blake Babies, had just been touring with the Lemonheads, and this first clip is her talking about touring with the Lemonheads. I've done shows with them in the past playing bass, but I just wanted to, on this tour, I wanted to keep the two bands separate just because I want to have my own identity and I don't know. I didn't want 
to confuse people and like mm-hmm. make them like not know what I'm really about, you know. Mm-hmm. But but you did want to do a tour with Lemonheads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, well, you know, as everyone knows, she had a, some sort of relationship with Evan Dando and all that. She talks in that clip, that's interesting, you know, about how she didn't want her own identity getting swamped by being the Lemonheads bass player. She sounds like she's about 11 years old in the interview. It's she pretty, does, doesn't she? very peculiar. Yes, I was really shocked. I don't think I've ever heard her speak before. Yeah. Every other word is like. like yes. Like, uh, like, like. You know, I'll be honest, I don't think she's that fascinating no. you know here or elsewhere no no <laughs> but quite an interesting snapshot of sort of indie america at that time they talk at some length in the interview as much ira as her talking about nevermind when nirvana's nevermind which just come out and yes. just turned into this huge hit she talks about how she loved bleach as this really indie gritty record and it, so in in that respect it is a snapshot of something that was very important and Lemonheads, we were talking about them yesterday as a sort of precursor to grunge in certain respects. Later on, the last clip we'll play at the end of the, this podcast is her talking about this rise of the new batch of women singers and yes. so on and so forth. So, so it, it, it's a period piece. It's a quite interesting period piece. Yes, it's interesting hearing her talk about a, a term I'd completely forgotten, which is fox core. Yeah, which just, <laughs> I, I just sounds so on PC now. And, yeah. it, and it, it, it was sort of so it was kind of pretty girls playing sort of indie hard rock, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, she sounds really quite sort of ditzy and, and sort of innocent in yeah. this interview. But as you say, this was an Im- important kind of moment in American rock in the wake of grunge and Nirvana's sort of stratospheric success. Absolutely. And she was, I mean, if Evan Dando was uh, the, the pin-up of that, the male pin-up of that period, she was sort of the, the, the female pin-up. Yes, I, I, um, I think that's fair. I, I, it's almost as interesting for what uh, Robinson says as what she says. And, yes. And he, he didn't get Nevermind. No, he says, well, he also says he didn't really like Bleach particularly, and she yeah. makes a big deal of how much she loved yeah, Bleach. Yeah. But it is interesting because it's 1992, so Nevermind's only been out that's for right. less than a year yeah, probably yeah. at this point. Yeah. So, so even at this point, even though it's it's selling a lot, yeah. it's it's not this kind of behemoth that no. we now think of. Right. But you know, she's she's perfectly charming, and she's managed to you know maintain a, a yeah. career yeah. In, in the subsequent you know whatever it is, sort of twenty five years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. is it thirty five years? I really do lose count, Mark. <laughs> um, yeah, you have to do the math. Um, but I mean, she has a new album coming out called Weird, which I've not heard. But last year, she all things released an album of Olivia Newton-John covers. I have no um, idea. Juliana Hatfield <laughs> sings Olivia Newton-John. I don't know what kind of a budget she got for that, <laughs> but it, it's it's an interesting musical journey that that she's had. Yeah. And, um, I mean, I I really did like The Lemonheads. You yeah. know, in that period, I thought that um, It's a Shame About Ray, which she plays most of the bass guitar on. That's right. Uh, I think is a pretty terrific record. I think Evan managed to sort of combine that sort of grunge energy with some terrific Tunes. melodies. Yeah. And uh, yeah. he was he was a really great writer. I, I interviewed him a little later in the decade when he was sort of really falling apart. I mean, he was a bit of a mess of a guy. Yeah, yeah. But... Certainly not without talent, yeah. I think, you know. There is a new Lemonheads album, I believe, coming out in a, in a month or two. Why so. won't these people go away? 
question. Well, I think Evan can still write yeah. songs. No, you know. I, 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 remember, I, I believe that even the greatest artists have mm. no more than four years or four great albums in them. And I think after that, you should just basically shuffle off. And do what? Anything. Really? Yeah. Yeah, working records. Stores, yeah, absolutely. If there are any left. Yeah, absolutely. She talks about working the records. She did work in, yeah, a, yeah. in a store and, in Boston. And how she liked selling Boston. her own records to people. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> shall we move on? Oh, let's. <laughs> well, you're moving us on oh, into, right. the, into, the dom- into the domain of all that's new. Absolutely. In the, in the library for subscribers. Well, I mean, I, I've singled a handful of fabulous or certainly interesting pieces to tell, <laughs> tell you about. The first one is actually is brilliant. It's our second earliest piece about the Beatles. Per- Who? Specifically, the Beatles. Oh, the Beatles. The Beatles. Um, and it's by Gene Carroll, a.k.a. June Harris, for disc in November 1962. Oh. Really early. and um, Before I was born. It was... I was already four by then. Actually, hang on, I was six. That's an arrant lie, by the way. Was it? Yes, I was I, born. I wasn't sure. <laughs> uh, yes, November 62, uh, and Love Me Do's come out about a month previously. It hit the, the peak of 17 in the NME chart. Uh, so it wasn't a huge hit. No. We, we forget that. We, uh, everyone sort of, I forgot. Everyone sort of imagines that Love Me Do went to number one, and it didn't. And they'd just come back from playing the Star Club in Hamburg with Little Richard. And it's a short interview. That each of them has a couple of sentences to say. And already, the sort of the individual characteristics are emerging just in these, these, these snippets. And Ringo Starr talking about John. He says, John writes a little poetry, which is the weirdest you ever saw, but it stops him from going mental. I mean... I think that's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, it actually tells you so much about, well, John Lennon. Sure. And this is... 62. November 62. Sure. Um, yeah. Moving on, Twinkle to Jean, Jean-Marie. Now, Jean-Marie is actually Dawn James, and Twinkle is Dawn James's sister. So this is sisters in, being interviewed I'm all, by one I'm confused. Uh, yeah. Okay, Twinkle is Dawn James's sister. Dawn James, under the name of Jean-Marie... I was really confused. Aren't you? I, I, I still am. Anyway, there's a couple of really nice quotes in it. She says, Being 13 to 20 is like being branded... Because of your age, you're considered wild, unintelligent, and sometimes dead evil. Wow. And then this, uh, the next one I just love is, there are lots of temptations thrown your way in this business, and they're thrown by some gorgeous, famous boys. Oh, that's <laughs> superb. That, that's great. <laughs> it, 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 it's, actually, again, throughout the piece, there's some very, very good writing. She talks about being side of the stage before Twinkle goes on to do a life performance, and it's a really beautifully descriptive bit of writing. Dawn James is a seriously yeah, good really writer. Good. Like almost uh, apart from Dawn and Penny Valentine, every other female journalist in that era was either called June or Jane or Jean. The world of Joe. Yes. In America, a lot of Carols, Carols, <laughs> and actually, there's a side issue which we will talk about at another time. Oh, a love side issue. A great length is that how much pop writing was done by women, both here and in America in the 60s. Yeah. Outside of the, the central music press, the enemy mm. and the melody maker, which are mm. exclusively male bastions, all the rest of the music press, and especially the magazines like Rave, were substantially written by women. Mm. Anyway, moving on to a bit of fantastic un 
The headline, just this is New Music Express 1971, the headline is great. Hot Chocolates Errol Brown owns up. The ladies are nympho. Oh, dear. And the piece opens, No messing about, chuckled Errol Brown, that shiny-domed hot chocolatier who co-wrote <laughs> You Could Have Been a Lady. It's a song all about a nymphomaniac. Oof. He warmed his subject. And you see this young girl, this nymph, she runs wild. And the guy in the song is saying, why are you running all over town, honey, when you could have been at my place and you could have been a lady? I mean, ooh, scorching. Um, but also a very early hot chocolate piece. And hot chocolate had an enduring career. They, you know... I was very fond of hot chocolate. Were you? To, well, my memories of Top of the Pops in that era mm-hmm. very much involved with, with Errol Brown. What an extraordinary performer he was on TV. Yeah. He, he had this extraordinary charisma. I remember years later interviewing Alan Vega of Suicide. Right. And he suddenly started talking about Errol Brown, <laughs> uh, which, was, which was unexpected. But he felt exactly the same way about Errol Brown and was sort of... Uh, mesmerised yeah. by him. Uh, and as a band, they were interesting because they weren't really of any identifiable genre. I mean, they were essentially a black band doing stuff loosely based in black music. On Mickey Most's label. On Mickey Most's label. Produced by Mickey. Uh, and, and yet they had enormous crossover appeal to the, the English pop audience, across generations. Very, very interesting. And it started with a kiss, just... One of the greatest you just love it, pop records you? ever made, did it, I think. Did it, I really do. Did it, start, did it start with a kiss, Barney? Did what start with a kiss? <laughs> <laughs> OK, moving on. Well, we just, it's a very brief one. Is, is Morrissey famously wrote to the music press. Is he one of our writers? No? Morrissey? No, it's uncredited writer. And this is a, a, he wrote this letter that sounds in defence of the New York Dolls in 75, which is quite a famous letter. But oh. the last paragraph is just hilarious. Not to mention the truckloads of amateur bands which, as I pen this epistle, will no doubt be screeching away at unrecognisable chords after bathing in the latest brands of cosmetics. Oh. And this is sort of Maximum Morrissey just right there, isn't it? You know, oh. it's just... That, that is fabulous. I mean, he, of course, wrote a kind of quote-unquote book about the New York That's Dolls, right. didn't he? Which yeah. was essentially a sort of scrapbook of reviews and cuttings and pastings and stuff with some of his own th- yep. thoughts. But the Dolls were clearly incredibly important to, to Morrissey. I mean, as, as indeed they were to me, I think, people, to yeah. you. Yeah, you yeah. know, loved the Dolls. You know, very different cooks from the Smiths, but, but a, a very important part yeah. of the Morrissey But anyway, I, I, I did like that bit of pure Morrissey in this pure letter Mozart. from 75. Moving on to 89, Robert Fripp, long, long Robert Fripp But how do you pronounce his name? Ted Drodowski. Drozdowski is how I pronounce it. I don't know how Ted pronounces it. For Musician, 1989. And Robert Fripp's played on two or three of my favourite records, I'd say. I mean, some of the stuff he did with Bowie in the late 70s. I thought you were going to say In the Court of the Crimson (laughs) Never liked it. But moving on, he's been involved in a lot of really interesting stuff, but he comes over as an interview as insufferably pompous. I mean, he really does. It's that time when he had that huge gathering of young guitarists around him and he had all of that sort of stuff going on. He says, you know, you know Hendrix? He didn't know how to hold a pick. Clapton? He doesn't either. Beck? Hasn't a clue. Well, I'd say at least two of those three guitarists, Hendrix and Beck, really, shall we say, piss all over... You know, Mr. Fripp from Mr. a very, Fripp. very great height. I mean, it's riveting. This man has so, got no self-awareness at all. And, right. and also he's surrounded by acolytes. These 
young students worshipping at his feet. He's the sort of, he is the great figurehead for a certain kind of highbrow prog rock, isn't he? Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, I know a lot of people are really passionate about him. I know a lot of people who really like King Crimson in a way that I never, I never managed to. Um, There was... It's interesting, we, we met Bill Bruford at a conference in, was it Manchester, a few years back? Yeah, and same one where we met uh, Dave Lang. That's right, and he talked about his time with Mr Frick, yes. and he said it was just fairly intolerable, that, that, that he was a very, fairly unpleasant man to work with. And a sort of control freak, con- I think. Con- complete uh, control Bruford freak. was such a nice oh, man. Charm. Didn't we like him? Total charm. Just delightful you know, um, uh, With a Fujist's accent, I think I've ever heard. You know, <laughs> You know, he could have been a sort of junior minister in Harold Millen's government, but um, very delightful man. Yeah. And, and he, he laughingly told us about this sort of yes, these, he did. the less than pleasant experience of working with Robert Fripp. With Mr. Toya Wilcox. Um, and going on to another fairly miserable, well, in this case, miserable person, it's Mark Eitzel of American Music Club, being interviewed by Max Bell. And American Music Club played some of the most miserable music I think I've ever heard in my life. There is not a, a, there's barely a gleam of light in anything they did, and in his solo work. And he basically talks about it. I'm a massive contradictions of Mitzitzel, striking a pained, lights-on, occupant-out expression. True, I love depressing songs, but they're uh, kind of uplifting. I don't smile before four in the afternoon, and I can't write about dancing or having fun. Well, you know, that's true. You know? <laughs> I love it. Don't smile before four in the afternoon. When do we first start smiling in the RBP office? Oh I, no, I, I, I'm, I wake You're up. You're with him. I wake up with a wake beam on my face. <laughs> yes, Excuse yes. me. Um, yes. No, I mean I, I actually saw American Music Club a couple of times because mm, they actually did two in Micro Disney. Curious. Did they? Enough. Yeah. The rest of the band were very jolly young men, and, and Mark was just dark and brooding in the corner, but. I, I had to le- I had to leave. I, uh, I, I had to walk it's out. It's the first time I've heard you say that. <laughs> I, it has to be admitted I'm fairly notorious for walking out of <laughs> live shows. But anyway, so th- th- great. Th- there, there we are. Excellent. How about from your Yeah, end? So, so from the last 20 years, a few juicy selections, starting with Ted Kessler of the NME, corralling uh, Liam Gallagher and one other member of Oasis. I can't remember his Bonehead. name. Bonehead. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, certainly boneheaded, whoever he was. And so it's like fans' letters, you know. Yeah. Uh, sort of, you know, X from Hartlepool asks Liam what his favourite... Anyway, so it's just, it's Liam just being his usual sort of charmless self. There's, in the light of this fantastic <laughs> Gillette TV ad about sort of... Of toxic masculinity. There's a moment. There's one question to Liam: What was the last movie that made you cry? And Liam goes, "Stupid question. I don't cry. I'm a geezer." Oh. That kind of sums it up. Do I need to really say anymore? No, no, no. no okay. No, no. Um, secondly, um, Jimmy Page also in the news this week. I think you'll agree. This fantastic story about Robbie Williams, his next door neighbour, <laughs> blasting <laughs> records by all the sort of heaviest bands of the 70s except Led Zeppelin <laughs> to torment Jimmy Black Sabbath um, Deep Purple Black Sabbath and Deep Purple uh, I, well those are the two yeah. main ones and and Jimmy's representative legal or otherwise writing to complain about <laughs> this ah. it's just and apparently also Robbie dressing up 
as Robert Plant. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't know whether sort of then sort of disporting himself at a window where Jimmy could see him in a long blonde wig and and some sort of thing to make him look like he had a kind of beer belly. Which I don't I, seem to remember Plant necessarily having. I mean, I'm not saying he's as thin as he was back in the I 1970s. I haven't seen him lately, but, but, so I don't know. But, I mean, the idea that that would torment Jimmy, who doesn't get on with Robert anyway. You yeah. know? I mean, it's all, it's all very peculiar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, this is a profile, Tim Cooper, to 2004 in The Independent, where Jimmy is sort of um, just talking about the usual sort of cliches about Zeppelin, but also talking about how bad he feels about missing uh, his daughter Scarlett's childhood because he was always touring, mm-hmm. and, but how now he's up at six in the morning with, with his three children's current brood. He has to be up at six to get them ready for school. Right. So that's Jimmy. Um, there's a... I noticed that you added uh, a, a great piece by Jeffrey Cannon on Nick Cohn, the yeah. first, you know, really top sort of male writer on uh, pop in the 60s. Absolutely. Um, his book, um, at that point, uh, called, I think, Pop from the Beginning, but it, but we know it is a what bop and what bam boom. Just fantastic book, yep. I think. And he's written a number of other books. In 2005, uh, Sean O'Hagan reviews his extraordinary book, Cohn's extraordinary book, Trickster, about getting involved with the, the New Orleans rap scene. Wow. Which is just, a, just one of the most remarkable yeah. books. I, I mean, Cohn was interesting because I mean he was also he's in some ways an old even though he's he's English, mm. but he's a kind of old school American type journalist who would have written for the New Yorker or those yeah. sorts of publications. Because his story, his story for New York Magazine, yeah. about the disco scene in Brooklyn became begat Saturday Night Absolutely, Fever. Um, yeah. So that's one of the things he's most famous for. But he did started managing some rap acts in New Orleans, and it, 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 it didn't end well. <laughs> Um, and this, this, so Sean mentions this piece in the book where Nick gets lost in one of the projects in New Orleans, the Iberville project, and he and writes about it as the most terrifying thing that he has ever experienced. And he writes very candidly at one point where he says, "Actually, it, I was I realised I wasn't afraid so much of uh, being mugged or shot, or I was afraid of blackness itself." Wow. Which is which I think is honest. It's a very honest statement. I will leave it. I won't say any more about mm-hmm. it, but it's but it's a sort of it's a kind of white admission of just uh, coming into this yep. very different environment mm-hmm. and feeling completely out of his depth. Yep. Fascinating book, great review by Sean O'Hagan. Uh, and just a couple more things. There's a sort of revisiting of Van Dyke Parks's magnificent song cycle album. Which was the, which was the record that Warner Reprise famously spent over thirty five thousand dollars on in nineteen sixty eight and yeah. sold about ten copies. So Van Dyke reminiscences about this album, which has become a very important artifact in the sort of story of, of sort of eccentric Americana. I mean, love it or leave it, it's a fascinating record, and Van Dyke's one of the great characters in mm-hmm. Los Angeles music. And then, last but not least. A piece about uh, Bob Dylan from the American Conservative magazine. <laughs> well, we've recently added to our, our illustrious roster of writers uh, Robert Dean Leary, who is a good writer. He's written, he writes for sort of blurt and things, but he, he, he seems to have carved out a niche for himself as writing for sort of, shall we say, 
conservative magazines, such as the American Conservative, but also the New Republic and... I'm so pleased. Well, it, I mean, it's a different take, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? it? Is. You know, it and is. so he writes about Dylan in the context of Dylan's retreat mm-hmm. to Woodstock mm-hmm. and becoming this sort of folksy, paterfamilias, recording country songs yep. in Nashville and so forth. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting sort of slot. I do think, in a way... It, it's not a bad thing for him to be writing about because Dylan really was sort of the anti-hippie, mm-hmm. actually. I write, he, be, he sort of, he, he kind of uh, generated the whole hippie yeah. movement, but then he absolutely refuted and rejected we, it. We spoke a few weeks back about, on one of the podcasts, about his religious period. and Well, uh, there you go. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and his, his particularly conservative vision of this, of Christianity, you know, even by the standards of the, the time, so absolutely that that, yes. that that fits with that perfectly. So, so, so Dylan in the American Conservative. That, that I'm so glad we got <laughs> the American Conservative in our magazine list now. It's, yeah. it's, it's a minor triumph. I think. Yeah, I feel a sense of sort of completeness. Now. <laughs> the, the, the political spectrum <laughs> has been covered by Rock's back pages. Yep. So, I mean, that essentially is well. Those are some of the highlights yep. um, of what's new on RBP this week. It's been our pleasure to as talk always. about all this with you, as always. Um, we look forward to speaking with you next week when we'll be featuring an audio interview with the great Alex Chilton of Big Star fame and um, also talking about Prefab Sprout, Paddy McAloon. Um, but we are, Mark, we're going to go out with another uh, clip uh, from Juliana, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, Juliana Hatfield and the North, uh, talking about... <laughs> That's uh, what she should really have called her really back in band. Her band. She's got these great names for bands, like the I Don't Cares and the Blake Babies and so forth, but really it should have been Juliana Hatfield and the North. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's an English art rock joke from the 70s. Here she talks about chicks getting serious. I think that a lot of chicks are getting serious. Like, they have serious, like, agenda, you know, like, they want to make what they want to make serious waves in mm-hmm. music, in music, and so I think that a lot that it's going to be it's good. It's a good time to be doing music. Mm-hmm. That was Juliana Hatfield speaking to Ira Robbins in July 1992, concluding this week's Rock's Back Pages podcast. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and the producer was Jasper Murison Bowie. For a list of articles discussed and full show notes, please visit rocksbackpages.com forward slash podcast. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.